is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is... Hello everybody, Vivian Langford here. I'm here to challenge you to take climate action. Tonight we're going to the National Environment Conference and I spoke to Alex Rafelovich, who represents CANA, the Climate Action Network. He says there are only 40 to 50 paid people working on climate action in Australia. Well, I think that's acting as if we're doomed. So let's get real. When people ask me what my aim is, I say it's to engage the thousands of listeners I know who tune in to us every Monday by bringing the leading, most innovating thinkers to them. But it's not just for them to sit back a little better informed or maybe a bit moved or interested. No, it's to galvanize them, to galvanize you collectively. We have the tools now to wind back our emissions. Beyond Zero's researchers have laid out all the blueprints. But we know it's more than that. To talk about our democracy and how it's threatened, we'll have Christine Milne in the second half of the program. She says we're living in a plutocracy. Our parliaments are democratically elected, but they are owned by corporate and wealthy interests. And the interests of coal and gas are stopping the emergency leap into renewable energy that we must take. We'll also hear from John Hewson about the way climate action is confounded by politicians, like those ones who blamed the recent blackout in South Australia on wind farms rather than the unprecedented storm caused by climate change that knocked out the power lines. But first, let's hear from Naomi Klein. She's in Melbourne this week and she's visiting Australia to receive the Sydney Peace Prize. She says that the corporate media always ask her what's realistic, yet their idea of realism is like the appeasers before World War II. They could see Hitler rearming, but they shuddered to act on the worst-case scenario. It happened anyway, and she says... My idea of what is politically realistic is like what will sustain human life on this planet. This, this uh, talk with Naomi Klein is courtesy of the Elephant Podcast. And Kevin Kanis, I give thanks to him for letting us have permission to use it. So if your question after all of this, hearing Christine Milne, Naomi Klein, John Hewson and Alex Rafelovich, if your question is, how are we going to get there? My answer is to get informed. Listen actively to this program with a pen in hand. Give us your opinions and feedback. Tell us what climate action you are taking and who we can interview. Think of this like ham radio in occupied France. You can join the resistance to a media which tells you it's unthinkable or radical to preserve our climate and our future. Now here's Naomi Klein. Well, my guest today probably doesn't need much of an introduction to most listeners. Naomi Klein is one of the foremost writers and thinkers in the world today. Her books No Logo and The Shock Doctrine, which both took on the logic of neoliberalism, became international bestsellers. They were translated into dozens of languages and both became manifestos of sorts to the new progressive movement. Her latest book, This Changes Everything, was released last year. 
and it's been no less instrumental. In it, Naomi Klein turns her focus specifically to climate change and examines how the logic of austerity, deregulation, and globalization has in effect tied our hands when it comes to dealing with climate change and made it much harder for us to solve. She argues that in order to overcome the climate crisis, we also need to push back against the rapid neoliberalization that has transformed Western democracies since the 1980s and seen government budgets shrink and corporate power increase. The book was also turned into a documentary that recently came out, directed by her husband, Avi Lewis, and Klein is also on the board of the influential climate change organization, 350.org. I caught up with Naomi Klein this week in Paris. Here's a conversation. Well, Naomi Klein, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you. Great to be with you. I, I wanted to start off by, by raising a point that you made yesterday on Democracy Now!, which I think was a, a really good one. And you said that social movements are about changing what is politically possible, and we need to make what is physically necessary politically possible. And I think that's such a great point because it suddenly drove home to me just kind of how absurd this current situation we're in, where those two things can somehow not be in line. I was wondering if you could just comment on that, what that says, that somehow what we need to have be done, what is physically necessary for, the, for there not to be disaster, is still not politically possible. Yeah, I mean, this is the great untenability of our current moment uh, on earth where you know every interview I did yesterday with the corporate press asked me what was realistic and you know and that's that's the way that world is trained to think and their definition of realism is you know what what can politicians get through their you know various political structures at home you know what idea is considered too radical my idea of what is politically realistic is like what will sustain human life on this planet. And, you know, the idea of allowing temperatures to increase by three degrees Celsius, which is what these pledges collectively will um, bring us to. And the same people are telling us that it's not realistic for that to be legally enforceable. So that means, well, anything can happen. It could be four degrees. It could be six degrees if it's not legally enforceable. So, that is called realism in our current structure, but that is intensely radical and dangerous um, and, and, and utterly unrealistic in terms of any kind of you know, stable society. So you know, we, we are in this moment where um, what is considered realistic, centrist, conservative is highly, highly radical, actually. Um, and what is actually, you know, just in line with the laws of nature is considered, you know, unthinkable, radical, impossible. So how, how far would you say we have to go until we're at the point where it's politically possible to do what we need to do? Well, I think for starters, the, the neoliberal project is completely incompatible with serious action on climate change, right? Um, you know, one of the things that happened on the first day of the summit is Bill Gates stole the show and announced that he was helping marshal all of this private money and public money to invest in the quest for an energy miracle, right? This is Bill Gates's sort of obsession that we need huge amounts of money on, spent on R&D um, looking for a miracle that, that will create the breakthrough technology 
that will unleash a huge amount of private potential, right? So his model is, you know, is really the internet, right? Like the public money that's spent building the internet, right? Which is basically a project of the Pentagon, then is privatized by players like Microsoft and Google and so on, and they create the next big wave of capitalism. So what's interesting about that is it takes for granted that existing technologies are of no use, right, <laughs> or of very little use. And so, you know, we could invest massively in public transit, for instance, and that would lower our emissions, but, there, you know, it, there's no discussion of that because that's not considered realistic. So it's considered more realistic to invest in notional technologies um, than it is to invest in existing public infrastructure because we just don't do that anymore, right? And, and public transit somehow isn't as sexy as inventing fusion or some... Exactly. Um, so, you know, I think that just highlights just how incompatible our current system that... Um, you know, that, that, that is constantly starving and belittling the public sphere, public services that serve average people, anything that decentralizes economic power, um, and fetishizes this billionaire class, private profit, pri private entrepreneurial potential. And, and here they're openly calling for scarce public dollars to go into that model as opposed to, you know, a tried and tested public model. So, you know, I don't think just challenging neoliberalism is enough, but I do think that it's kind of what we need to get to the starting point. I, I you know, I also think we've, we, we need to challenge our growth-based economic system because we obviously need to contract the role of consumption um, in our economy. It isn't just about those technologies. We're going to burn a lot of carbon in order to get off fossil fuels. And so, you know, you, the way our current system is built is that money will just go into consumption and emissions could very well go up even as we invest in renewable energy and transit. You point out in the book that, you know, to, I think to stay under two degrees, we're now looking at, because we've procrastinated for so long, something like eight to 10% in emissions reductions a year, which is a, a huge transformation. But you, you make an interesting point about World War II in that suddenly we, we mobilized the resources. We, we did things that were potentially before culturally not seen as acceptable, even things like rations or women working in the workforce. Can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, those, that 8 to 10 figure comes from the Tyndall Center on Climate Change Research, which is, you know, one of the world's leading research centers. It comes from Kevin Anderson, who's deputy director of the Tyndall Center. He's here in Paris and, you know, probably the world's leading expert on radical emission reduction, emission reductions. And I think it's important to, you know, to, to point out that this is, you know, these are not my numbers. These numbers come from the Tyndall Center and nobody has disputed them. Nobody has disputed them. You know, uh, they, it's just an inconvenient, a truly inconvenient truth, right? Um, and, and, and Kevin is always pointing out that there is a conservatism in the, even in the climate research community, even among, among climate scientists, where, you know, they too are locked within this neoliberal framework. And so even as they raise the scientific alarm, you know, Kevin points out that they're often unwilling to follow their research to its logical conclusions, right? So they soft pedal the implications of this for our economy. But the, the precedent, the World War II precedent, you know, I think is a really important one because it shows that economies can be transformed very, very quickly. Um, in North America and in England uh, during, during World War II, you saw 
complete transformation in how people move themselves around, right? So there was, I think there was, in some cases, a nine, more than a 90% increase in use of public transit. Leisure driving just completely disappeared. People didn't just go for a drive anymore because they were rationing the use of petrol. Um, and, and another example is, is the Marshall Plan, is, is the rebuilding post-war and the transformations that happened. The limits of that analogy are that it's an entirely top-down uh, approach. It's the state declaring an emergency and imposing measures on society. It was important that those measures be perceived as fair. I and mean, one of the things I look at in the book is that people are willing to embrace um, rationing if it's imposed in a way that that is perceived as fair. And in particular, you know, that the wealthy also have to ration. And, you know, it's, it's significant that in Great Britain and in the United States, corporations uh, were virulently opposed to many of these measures, and the governments introduced it anyway. Um, but, you know, the problem with climate change is that it, well, first of all, the times have changed so much. So, you know, this is such a challenge. That was a Keynesian time, and, you know, we are not in a Keynesian time, so this seems unthinkable. But also just that, you know, corporations did benefit from those big public investments. And responding to climate change is going to mean a redistribution of wealth in a way that is, I think, so threatening. And that, I think, is where the analogy breaks down. In the book, I also talk about the New Deal as probably a better analogy in terms of it not just being a top-down solution in the sense that the New Deal was a product of huge pressure from below. Um, and then, you know, the New Deal was a compromise, right? Um, you know, in a deeply imperfect compromise. But I think that that's much, a much better analogy for, for the kind of conditions that are going to produce a low-carbon, adjust, adjust the space low-carbon transition than wartime rationing, which was just sort of like state edict. And I don't think we want that. Like, I don't think we want, um, you know, a transformation by state edict. And I think if we had it at this stage in history, it would be a disaster and it wouldn't actually serve the majority of people. Um, but I think if you look at the kinds of economic transformations that happened in North America in the midst of the Great Depression, you know, it shows what a very, very mobilized population can produce in combination with governments that, you know, are to some extent receptive to pressure to a large extent. I think reading that example specifically about World War II gave me um, kind of a bit of hope and despair at the same time because on the one hand, it's like, okay, great, things can really change quickly. Um, but on the other hand, it's strange because, you know, war, I feel like it produces this visceral response. We, see, we saw that with the Paris attacks recently, which is obviously a tragic thing, but it doesn't threaten the whole world like climate change does. And yet climate change doesn't inspire that same sort of urgency, that visceral response. Do you think it could? I think it could. I don't think it's ever received the, the crisis levels of treatment. I mean, like, I think what you see with the Paris attacks is that what gets declared an emergency is, is subjective, right? Um, you know, and, and this is not about belittling the attacks in any way, but 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 why does an event like that catalyze transformation, but an event like Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy um, not become the same kind of catalyst? It could be the same kind of wake-up. And what don't you think it has been so far? Why have those two been so different in their reactions? Um, because of what I was saying earlier in the sense that, um, you know, if you look at the way in which a terror attack ca uh, catalyzes change and the nature of the change it catalyzes, right? It's a kind of change that serves elite interests very, very well. Restrictions on civil liberties, privacy, um, 
and, you know, it unleashes a huge amount of public money that serves private interests, the whole sort of private surveillance state. And, and, you know, we saw it after September 11th, and this is what I, you know, wrote about in a huge amount of detail on the shock doctrine of, you know, how there was a boom in, in what I call the disaster capitalism complex. Um, whereas if we were to respond with that kind of force after, you know, whether it's a, you know, a, a heat wave or in the midst of, I mean, what's to stop Obama from saying, look at what is happening in California with the drought and the, and, and the impact on agriculture. This is an emergency. This is telling us we need to change. This is what we're going to do. Those changes would, um, you know, if they're real, if they're really going to bring down our emissions, it would be incredibly threatening to our elites. Um, they would require massive investments in the public sphere that would benefit the majority of people that would, um, it would have to be financed with increases in taxes. Um, there's no other way it's going to happen. You would have to be imposing tough regulations uh, on corporations and telling them that they're not going to be getting new oil and gas leases on public lands. It would be restricting fossil, new fossil fuel frontiers. I mean, all of this, it would, it would, it, there would be a revolt, <laughs> right? A corporate revolt. So, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we know what it looks like for, we know what it looks like for politicians to make speeches saying climate change is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. In fact, we hear nothing but here in Paris right now. Um, but, those statements are completely out of alignment with what those same governments are actually doing in the real world. The public takes their cues from from media, from leaders. So, you know, if a terror attack pivots to none of you are safe, you know, we have to do all of these things to keep you safe, right? Then people say, wow, like this really is transformative. Um, there's nothing preventing the same thing from happening in response to the reality of climate change right now. Like we don't need more bad things to happen in order for, for leaders to actually do that. Um, you know, we, we, 2015 is the hottest year on record. 2014 was the hottest year on record. Um, you know, whether Hurricane Sandy, um, you know, Typhoon Haiyan, I mean, whatever it is, like, I'm, I definitely do not believe we have to wait for things to get better before we can declare an emergency. There is no shortage of, of things to get worse. To that. No. Uh, and, you know, there is there are some people who sort of say that oh, things haven't gotten bad enough. No, things are very bad. We don't connect the dots between between them. You know, we could even be doing that in relation to the Syrian drought and the, and the way it catalyzed the outbreak of civil war. And the connection with the refugee crisis, there's there's no shortage of 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 emergencies in the way climate change is playing out. There is a there is an absolute cognitive dissonance between the discourse around climate change and the kinds of reactions. When people see that, when people see this huge dissonance between the discourse and the response, they basically tune out because it, it doesn't add up. You know, but this is why you know it does matter. I think in in Paris that marches and demonstrations are banned because you know these huge you know displays in the streets, right? When you have like four hundred thousand people, it helps close that distance. It does. It, clo- it but and and even I mean literally these are these are our tools for declaring a, a people's emergency. Like you know, and people use that you know phrase a lot in the streets the other day of, of you know the l'état d'urgence like this is like we are in a state of emergency and it is not only the François Hollande's definition of a state of emergency and and exposing that subjectivity around you know what gets declared an emergency what gets the emergency treatment
you said what's stopping Obama from treating it like a crisis. And I, I would say, you know, this program is called The Elephant because climate change is the elephant in the room. And I feel like the elephant in the room of climate change is the Republican Party. Because um, I, I read a poll even uh, just yesterday in the New York Times that said even a majority of Republican voters are in favor of putting limits on uh, carbon emissions by power plants, which is incredible given the, the positions of all the presidential Republican candidates at the moment. It seems you pointed out that we need to fix the democratic deficit if we're going to solve the climate crisis. This seems particularly um, a big problem in, in America, and it, it seems like we have a lot of work to do. Could you just talk about, about that? I mean, that seems to be a really gigantic problem. It is, and, and certainly when I talk about these issues in the United States, that, that's, the, that's what comes up you know, most often, is people sense that you know, nothing is possible um, in a political system in which the Koch brothers can spend more than you know, either the Democrats or the Republicans in the next presidential cycle as they're planning to. And it's always worth remembering that the Koch brothers' money comes from fossil fuels. They're the largest leaseholders in the Alberta tar sands. Um, so you know, they're heavily invested in, 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 blocking, in blocking action. Um, you know, and, and then you have, you know, Donald Trump and just, just, you know, people seeing the way in which you can just buy your way into a presidential, you know, candidacy. Um, so absolutely, you know, I called the book, This Changes Everything, because um, once you start looking deeply at this issue, it does, you know, it has this domino effect on like, okay, well, this is broken and that's broken. Before we can do this, we have to deal with that. And, you know, in the United States, I would say probably number one on the agenda is, you know, corporate personhood and the role of you know, this, you know, the, the ability of, of private interests to pour money into the political system. And now, you know, um, without any transparency, whatsoever. You, one point you made is saying that it can't just be about emissions reductions. We also need a positive future, a, a positive outlook to imagine how things could be better in a, a situation where we deal with the climate crisis. W what would that future look like? And, and why do you think that's important to include, uh, not just uh, saying we need to cut emissions to uh, reduce catastrophe, that we can actually have things better than they are now? Well, because I think that, I think there's been this idea in the climate movement that fear alone could be a catalyst and um, you know I think fear is an important ingredient and, and I think we ha we should be fearful in this moment but it's it's I think the, the most potent combination is is fear and and hope and um, fear and excitement about what that catalyzing power of fear could produce right and, and you know if you think about the analogy of the Great Depression I mean it was you know it was it was the obvious need uh, to transform the economy because there was so much hardship, there was so much need, and also a really utopian idea about what a transformed society could look like uh, and how it could be so much more humane than anything that people had experienced before. And so, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, like fear on its own is actually only paralyzing or it creates like a short-term response. But what we need is a vision of the future that we want to get to so that the fear, you know, makes us jump. It makes us leap, but we need an idea of where we're leaping to. And, and I think that's particularly important in this sort of neoliberal age where you know, our political imaginations are so atrophied that we've, you know, all grown up with this idea that yes, like there are failures in the system, but the alternative is worse. There's no alternative. Like, like this is all there is. So I think th there's such a need for 
broadening our imagination to imagine another society that is not worse than what we have right now. So, I mean, you know, you talk about this in, you know, in Germany, and it's like, what do you want? You want state socialism, you want to take away democracy, you want fascism, and that's all people can think about because they, because that idea that, well, maybe there's another option, maybe there, maybe there's something better that we haven't tried yet, right? So we, you know, I think we need to, exercise that utopian muscle that is so atrophied in our society. And in Canada, we we tried to do this with uh, our little team hosted a meeting a few months ago um, of 60 social movement organizers and, you know, closed the doors for two days and let ourselves dream about what what would a justice-based transition off of fossil fuels look like, one that started from the premise that we don't just face a climate crisis, we face an inequality crisis, we face an injustice crisis, we have huge historical wounds that we need to heal. How do we solve multiple problems at once? And, you know, it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever you know, been through watching, you know, the labor movement and the indigenous, you know, indigenous leaders and, and uh, the climate movement really work through big, big differences and come up with a frame, which is this need to shift from an extractive economy to a caring-based economy, caring for the planet and caring for each other, and then sort of codify what policies that would take. And we launched this project called the Leap Manifesto that's been signed by more than 100 organizations, everyone from you know, Black Lives Matter Toronto to No One Is Illegal to you know, big groups like Oxfam and the head of the Canadian Labor Congress and you know, the really broadest coalition we've ever seen on something like, on any, on any issue I can think of, you know. And we just said, you know, our political parties aren't leading, we're going to lead from below. And, and you know, what's been wonderful is watching people use this as a tool to push politicians and, you know, like leap events across the country. And we're going to be talking about it here in Paris to hopefully um, maybe inspire more cross-sectoral organizing here. Because there's a lot of organizing going on against austerity, you know, in solidarity with refugees, on climate, but it's way too compartmentalized. We're still not telling a common story about how we can build a future that addresses all of these issues that connects the dots. Well, Naima Klein, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Naomi Klein, writer, activist, and author of This Changes Everything. And that's it for The Elephant this time. And we'll be back with more interviews soon, live from Paris. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kevin Kaners, along with Christina Peters and Matthias Gutz. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. And as always, you can visit us online at elephantpodcast.org to find all of our past interviews. We're given support by the Climate Kick Alumni Association. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you soon. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Every month, Coburg RSL Band Night showcases unique musical acts of all ages and stages at our not-for-profit venue. This month, we have the Paul Kidney Experience, Sun Blindness, Intrinsic Light, Filth Wizard, and Frostcock. On Saturday, November the 12th, doors open at 7pm and cost is a low 5 bucks, which includes free hot nibbles for all, circulated by our volunteers. 
see the Coburg RSL Band Night Facebook page for more details at facebook.com forward slash Coburg RSL Band Night. Coburg RSL Band Night, Arthur Support. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Christine Milne was a speaker at the National Environment Conference in Sydney. She made it absolutely clear that... We are living in a state of emergency for the planet. And it's currently an undeclared emergency, it's a denied emergency, but the real world tells us it is an emergency. I'm very pleased to bring you Christine Milne. We don't hear enough of her here. She's mostly working with the International Greens, so she's out of the country a lot and in the region. But she knows our conditions here, our environmental movement and its failings, and our political system and its failings. And so it's a voice we can trust as being really tailor-made for us. Christine Milne. Great to be back amongst the activist movement. And I too would like to start by acknowledging the Yarrabool people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, um, it is absolutely right to be asking the question where to from here for the collective environment movement. Because for all our efforts, we are living in a state of emergency for the planet. And it's currently an undeclared emergency, it's a denied emergency, but the real world tells us it is an emergency. And it doesn't matter where you look, whether you're talking about extreme weather events, whether you're talking about ice and glacier melt, whether you're talking about ocean acidification, sea level rise, change to ocean currents, species extinction, forest loss, species loss. We are in a global emergency. But we're in a situation where humanity kind of has separated itself from that and pretends that it is not happening or that it is happening, but we've got plenty of time to deal with it. We've had 50 years to deal with everything for the last 50 years and so it goes wrong, as John just mentioned. But as Einstein said, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that's what I would say about the environment movement as well. We have to stop it, draw a line under it, recognise we're in a state of emergency. What we've done hasn't worked. What are we going to do now? So the first thing we have to do is, well, what is the situation we're in? Before you can change it, you have to actually acknowledge what it is. Well, I would argue that... um, We are living in a plutocracy, not a democracy. That is the first thing. We have morphed into it, it's been slow, we haven't actually acknowledged that it's happening, but we are now governed by the wealthy, for the wealthy. Our parliaments are democratically elected, but they are owned by corporate and wealthy interests. We have to start from that point of view. Secondly, we have to start from the premise that all politicians of all persuasions, independents, Greens, Liberals, Nationals, Labour, or whatever, the main focus is winning. Winning government, if you're one of the uh, old parties, or winning a seat, and more than winning a seat, winning influence through balance of power. Every politician of every persuasion gets that. So the current situation is that there is not enough fear that they will lose the seats or government to warrant standing up to vested interests. Or 
there's not enough confidence that they will win seats for government to warrant standing up to vested interests. And the mining tax will be the classic case of a preemptive strike just to remind them it's not worth their while to stand up to vested interests. So what we've got is the political perception that the environment movement is the captive of the Labor Party. That is where we currently are across Australian politics. And I say that because the Liberals don't think that there are enough votes in it for them when they know there is cash and jobs after they leave politics to stick with the best interests. There are not enough votes in it for them because they think the environment movement, no matter what they do, uh, is never going to vote for them or support them. That's what they do. The Labor Party, they take the movement for granted. They think they only have to be marginally better than the Liberals to get the support of the environment movement. They can deliver weak, ineffectual policy, benefit from a marginal seats campaign, and for what? What did the environment movement get for the marginal seats campaign? And in terms of Greens and independence, we are in it to influence outcomes, but frustrated, and I can speak to the Greens, I won't speak to the independents, frustrated that we don't get the backing from the movement. Rather than radicalising politics by backing the Greens, the movement actually chills action by encouraging the Greens and independents not to go too far because Labor won't be able to match it, etc., etc. So it's a political brokering position that the movement's taken rather than getting out there saying what has to be done. And I would say the first thing is for the movement is... Stop playing the politics. You are not the politicians. You are the activists out there changing public perception, bringing pressure to bear. The politicians will work out the deals. You stand for what you actually believe in. Secondly, it has to be apolitical. targets 
because it cons the rest of the world on what it's doing on land use, land use change and forestry. They got away with Kyoto 1 on stopping land clearance. They got the credits for that, which is still in the system, and then they reopened land clearing in Queensland and are about to do it in New South Wales. This is nonsense. The movement has to get a position which it goes to the world with, and that's my third point. We always knew in Tasmania we couldn't win an environment campaign in Tasmania. We did not win the Franklin in Tasmania. We did not win Wesley Vale in Tasmania. We have not won the forests in Tasmania. We won it on the mainland. For the national movement, you will win it in the rest of the world and bring it home. The reason the refugee campaign is now making way is they have taken it to the world. New York Times editorial, Guardian editorial in the UK, UNHCR, condemnation of Australia. They're starting to bring it home and put pressure on our government. They can promise political donations in exchange for policy. You can't. 
You need to be on the inside to provide information, but you need to be taken seriously on the inside, not just patted on the head and sent away. And the only way you get taken seriously on the inside is if you have got masses of people on the outside, as John said, the polls out there saying, unless you change this and stand up to those vested interests, we are not going to vote for you and we are also not going to just vote for second best. We're over it. So getting back our democracy, getting out of the coziness of inside of politics, getting back on the street, going global and bringing it home, collaborating uh, with uh, other people and fundamentally on climate, sorting ourselves out on land use and industrial emissions. This is a critical gap in the policy area and it's going to come right to the fore with the aviation emissions that have just been agreed in uh, that big meeting recently with the Paris Agreement. We can't win on the climate in Australia until we get our democracy back and we can't win on the environment and biodiversity until we protect carbon stocks and stop messing around with offsets and fluxes. Thank you. Now we'll hear from John Hewson. He's the former leader of the Liberal Party. Now he's a leader in getting business to adapt to climate change. He's also a professor at ANU, and he speaks about the great expectations held for Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister. But he now feels that he's drifting alarmingly. He urges us to build momentum for change outside the Parliament. The last speaker will be Alex Rafelovich, who is from Canna. This is the peak body for climate action nationally. Last week we talked about politics and climate change, and it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating beyond belief right now. And the most conspicuous recent example is what happened in South Australia, where an extreme weather event, and don't forget the climate scientists' original prediction was we'll see more extreme weather events occurring with greater frequency and intensity. This was an unusually extreme weather event for South Australia. Torrential rain, lightning strikes, and uh, gale force winds, which destroyed the transmission system. Basically, three transmission lines and 22 transmission towers were ripped out of the ground. So in those circumstances, it wouldn't have mattered whether the power was generated from coal or gas or wind or solar. It could not be transmitted. Uh, and yet, the immediate political reaction to that crisis, uh, I think Barnaby Joyce and Marshall in South Australia, and followed up by Turnbull and Friday and everyone, was to blame renewables. And renewables have nothing to do with that. I mean, I'm not saying there are problems with renewables as they've unfolded, but they had nothing to do with the crisis in South Australia. And I would have thought that maybe an initial response from a statesman like Turnbull would have been to just simply ring Jay Whitman and say, look, I see you've got a, a statewide tragedy that the resources of the federal government are behind you 100%. Let's leave the analysis and the polytechnic to another day. No, no, within about five seconds of the story breaking, they're on the, on the war path against renewables. And that's, uh, I think, indicative of the magnitude of the challenge we've got today uh, in getting a sensible government response uh, to, to this situation. It's rather odd because um, a lot of what happens in politics is poll driven and most of the polls I've seen in recent days show an overwhelming majority of Australians want substantive action on climate change. In fact, a significant percentage of them in the recent poll uh, said they'd pay more for electricity as long as it was genuinely renewable. 
Yeah. You know, in those circumstances, why aren't they listening to the broad brush of the community? And how is it that the National Party has undue influence of a couple of right-wing conservative members of the Liberal Party have undue influence on this issue? At a time where, you know, we are already, in a global sense, we're already behind the gun. And we're probably at or past the tipping point in terms of a sensible response to the challenge of climate change globally that uh, would see us get net zero emissions by 2050. And there's this sort of simple political belief, I guess, that you can wait for 2049 and achieve that. Because actually you're changing behaviour, you're changing the industrial structure of most economies. It takes time to implement. The transition is difficult. It needs to be managed, it needs to be looked. You need to have sort of a 30 to 50 year strategy against which you work in bite-sized chunks day in and day out. You don't see that in our political process. We have a situation now, and well, I feel pretty sensitive about this, but back in 93, I had a, a fight back election package which included an environment policy, which I'm sure nobody read, was uh, distracted by the GST and other things. But it called for 20% carbon emissions by the year 2000 off a 1990 base. We still haven't had yet an explanation as to how we'll get a 5% reduction in emissions by 2020 off a 2000 base. And we've got a Paris commitment now of 26 to 28% reduction in emissions by 2030, which is about half of the Climate Change Authority recommended they should be. And we've got a long way to go. And uh, the transition to that is going to require a very focused strategy on renewables. And I was so annoyed with the response to South Australia, not only in terms of the base politics of that, but to turn on the so-called labour states because they had ambitious renewable aspirations uh, seemed just, uh, you know, to be unconscionable. Uh, it just is uh, trying to distort what is a very important issue. As a practical matter, if you're going to achieve 26 to 28% reductions in emissions by 2030, you're going to need a renewable energy target of about 40 to 50% of an absolute minimum to achieve that. So to criticise states for wanting to aspire to achieve such a, a number seems to me just uh, to try and distort the facts just at another stage. Now, um, to get progress from here, I mean, it's a bit like asking the Irishman who's outside Dublin how to get to Dublin. And his answer will be, well, if I was going to Dublin, I wouldn't want to start from here. We are having to start from here. And it's very difficult to, to know how you start to change some of these entrenched behaviours. And there's a lot of expectation around the time when Turnbull became leader. I mean, he ditched all the effort to, said he ditched all the effort to, you know, sloganeering and the negativity. He's going to govern in terms of substance. There were great expectations, particularly in relation to the issue of climate change in the light of what he'd said in the past about climate change. There are now two views about that. One, he was passionately committed to that, but he did a deal to get the leadership. The other one is he never actually believed it at all. It's a position he adopted in order to differentiate his product at the time from one of the other leaders. Malcolm is proud of saying that it's an exciting time to be in Australia. I asked him to add two words to that. It's an exciting time to be in Australian Prime Minister. He wants to be Prime Minister. He was happy in the job. But, you know, he never came to my mind with a specific agenda. Uh, not committed, passionately committed to any 
32% rejected, not just in relation to the big issues like defining, I guess, same-sex marriage, environment, tax reform and so on. I suspect that there's no genuine commitment. And if he doesn't provide that sort of leadership at the cabinet level, he doesn't take on some of the, the minority, and I'd say the minority conservative views within the government, then I think the situation is just going to drift and drift alarmingly. And uh, that is my greatest concern. Uh, I think the only way you deal with that is continue to build the momentum outside government for change. So at some point, somebody looks at one of those polls and pays attention to the fact that they may not get re-elected unless they are seen to be doing something substantive about climate change. I'm at the National Environment Meeting and Alex Rafalovich uh, um, is with Kanna uh, and he said something very interesting yesterday. Alex, could you just say it again for our audience? What do you notice about, we're talking about the climate movement as a whole or including the environment movement and is it big enough? Yeah, and I think it's very clear that the movement is not big enough. And when we look at that, that's about the amount of people we call to action. But even when we think about it in terms of professionalised NGOs, uh, there would not be more than 40 or 50 people who are full-time campaigners on the issue of climate change in this country. Um, And if we think that that's a sufficient size to be able to change um, the economics or the culture or politics on climate, then we're kidding ourselves. We're kidding ourselves and we know about the fossil fuel lobbies have many more professional people, but even just your local, you know, school or uh, union. Unions, yeah, if when um, United Voice was campaigning for, for better childcare uh, rates for workers, which is a very important campaign and a very necessary campaign and, and more power to them, but they had 40 organisers full-time on it in Queensland, you know, so that's the scale of the resources that, that we should be trying to marshal and we need to, to be, be working towards. Okay. Can you just suggest the approach? <laughs> well, I think it's a case... No, because you work with Canna, so that's a collaborate. It gets all the bodies together, doesn't that's it? Right. And I feel there's not really much unity. I work with Beyond Zero Emissions. We don't, we're not connected too much with everybody else. Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of what we're trying to do at the Climate Action Network is, is build this idea of, of organising and community organising in terms of building more people, volunteers to take action locally and um, what they, way they care about. And so that requires an investment from organisations and the staff to do that. It requires a fair bit of capacity and thinking. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, I think the, the change has begun, but we're a long way from it, uh, is one thing. I mean, another thing is I think that organisations that have as their objective environmental protection or who, who have as their objective economic justice or have as their objective uh, thinking about the rights, the human rights of people here or overseas need to really consider how they engage with climate change and think about the, the scale of the resources they might need to put into it because it is not being taken care of. But where so can they collaborate? Where is there a forum for them all to cohere? So I think the Climate Action Network provides uh, a space where people share their, their campaign priorities and, and are brought together to try and define what they should be and what they look like. And I think around the federal election, you saw the most coordinated effort on on climate amongst environmental groups in, in a very long time, potentially ever. And so, you know, these are baby steps. You've got to start by building trust. And people, if, if you're in an organisation that is trying to campaign and take action on climate, join the Climate Action Network. You'll find out what's happening. You'll have the opportunity to join into to campaigns and moments. You know, I think we can see the next ones on the horizon that, that people are trying to unite around, looking at when the Paris Agreement comes into force, 
looking at the uh, in parliamentary inquiry into the closure of coal-fired power stations and, and looking at when the Hazelwood coal-burning power station, uh, if it has an announced closure, what that means and what we should be doing. And, and the Climate Action Network provides a space to support uh, organisations and, and campaigners to think about those things. I'm not disabled. I'm only disabled by society's inability to provide me with the supports and services I need. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability all day, Saturday 3rd of December with 3CR. There's got to be inclusive thinking. There's got to be inclusive action and there's got to be inclusive practising. Why the hell aren't we a bigger voting block? Welcome back. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Uh, Thanks tonight to the team, Teddy, Jody, Roger and Viv. I'm Andy. Thank you to the speakers, Naomi Klein, Christine Milne, John Hewson and Alex Raffelwich. I'm joined in the studio tonight by Erin and she's got some action news. Great. Thanks, Andy. Hi, everyone. Um hope you enjoyed that show tonight, particularly Naomi Klein. Um, Naomi is actually going to be in Australia and she is the recipient of the Sydney Peace Prize. So that's a great thing. And she will be speaking at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on Friday, November the 12th from 7.30 till 8.30. If you go to wheelercentre.com, you can um, possibly get a ticket, although they are selling fast. So make sure you uh, get along to that if you want to go and hear Naomi speak. Um, that podcast, that uh, the interview that we brought to you with Naomi and Kevin was um, from the Elephant podcast. Um, so Google that if you're interested. There's lots of other interesting climate change thinkers on that podcast that Kevin puts together. The other thing, um, if you can't get enough of Naomi Klein, and she's certainly worth listening to, is she is on Q&A tonight at 9.30 on ABC One. So be sure to submit a question via the ABC um, Q&A show Twitter, which is at Q&A, so at Q&A. Interestingly, there's two... IPA um, panellists on the show, so it might be interesting to see why the ABC thought that they needed two such uh, right-wing presenters on there. But be sure to tune in for that and um, get your comments out there, and that should be an interesting discussion. The other thing that um, I really want to encourage people to have a look at is um, there is a movie showing at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image on Tuesday, November the 15th, and this is the Years of Living Dangerously. This was on SBS. Um, It's a documentary series. Um, I'm not exactly sure if the movie was a... um, further on from the uh, from the TV series but it was a really great TV series which focused on all different elements of climate change looking um, from all different perspectives from the impact that climate change has had on the Syrian um, 
civil war through to wildfires in, in, um, throughout the world and that one featured Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about how the fire season now is, is no, no longer a season actually just is perpetual throughout the whole year so that's a really good thing so um, check out that um, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image um, that's in Fed Square in Melbourne on Tuesday November the 15th um, so just see uh, see about that if it's something you're interested in and again I don't know how many tickets I've got available for that but if you get in touch with them I'm sure you can find out Next week, tune in again at 5pm as BZD takes you to the carbon sinks of the Amazon, uh, to land clearing zones happening in Queensland and to the mangroves of on the Gulf. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for um, the next show that's coming up on 3CR, 855am in Melbourne, and that's the Save the Albert Park show. So thanks for uh, listening and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.